We're gonna continue the series of looking at the miracles of Jesus, the powerful miracle maker, Jesus. And we saw last week, the first miracle of Jesus that he turned the water into what? There you go. And some of you guys got a little nervous about that. I know Stephen had to calm you down a little bit, but we looked at, at the first miracle of turning the water into wine. Today, we're gonna dive into a passage of scripture in Luke chapter five, if you got your copy of God's word. Go to Luke chapter, chapter five, and we're gonna look at a miracle that took place that nobody saw coming. Actually, the people came seeking a miracle and Jesus gave them a completely different miracle. They got not what they were seeking, but they ultimately got what they needed. They got what they needed. Maybe you came in this morning seeking something. Maybe you came seeking a miracle. Maybe you're at a spot in your life that you know, unless God shows up, you are hopeless. And today we're gonna see that Jesus knows your greatest need, that Jesus knows what you need and he's ready to speak into your life this morning. So let's pray together, church, for a moment. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Lord, as we open your word, Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts today, that would you transform us from the inside out, that we would be changed made different as we exit these doors in a little while, that we would be different for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. And the church said, amen. 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 Luke chapter five, while you're flipping there, let me give you a little bit of background. We're very early in Jesus's ministry. He's already started performing, performing miracles to the point that the religious leaders have already started to get upset with him. He's already a threat to them to the point that Jesus has had to find a new base of ministry. Nazareth was his home, but he's had to shift to Capernaum on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, find a new hub for his ministry because he's under threat and attacks. Already while in Nazareth, he claimed to be the Messiah and that was so offensive that they tried to take his life, but they weren't able to do so. So Jesus has moved over to Capernaum. It's his home base for ministry. And that's what's gonna take place today in Luke chapter five, starting in verse 17. So let's look at this verse 17 together. It says, on one of those days, as he was teaching, that's Jesus, did this often. As he was teaching, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. See, Jesus' foundation of his ministry was not Miracles. It's just what it said at the beginning of this text. On one of those days, he was teaching. The foundation of Jesus' ministry was not doing miracles, was not the miraculous that drew the crowd and it was his teaching about the kingdom of God. And in this, some groups that are present, we see are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Let me give you a little bit of background so you understand the crowd that he's gonna be speaking to today. The, the Pharisees were the religious leaders, the elite religious leaders. They pursued a law, pursuing a perfection of law covered with legalism. Ultimately, it was a self-righteous goal that was really impossible. Their religion was void of grace, was void of repentance and was void of salvation. And Jesus had come on the scene and he was a threat to their fame, to their power, to their prestige. Jesus was a threat to them. It's kind of ironic that they claimed to worship God, yet they ultimately hated God. They claimed to love God and in their presence is Jesus whom they're trying to eliminate. 
kind of ironic that they say one thing, but it's not really true. The second group that's part of this gathering is the teachers of the law, which is a subset of the Pharisees. They're kind of the lawyers, the experts. They're the legal counsel. They are study the law and interpret the law. So you've got the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are the main gathering group here. But if you notice in the text of verse 17, it says they had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. This was a gathering. This was a gathering together. It was a coordinated moment. They had recruited all these individuals, sent out word, we need all of you to gather at this point, at this time. The threat was real to them. They were intimidated. They had attempted some things in Nazareth towards Jesus that was unsuccessful. And now they said, let's gather the troops. There's power in numbers. So for them, it was a big moment that they were uniting together. Even in their differences, they came together, united to attempt to stop Jesus's ministry. Their goal in this moment was to catch him doing something that was wrong or saying something that was wrong. And they thought if we can catch Jesus doing this with our crowd there, then we can mobilize this to eliminate his ministry, keep their power, their prestige and their fame. So the atmosphere that they had gathered in a home, this passage that we're gonna look at in, Mark, in Luke five is also in, in Mark and Matthew's gospel and so we see there that he was in a home, probably a large home, that they had packed in this home. And there was a packed in crowd, shoulder to shoulder. They were packed in. But there was an intensity to the conversation and expectation. There was a thickness to the air that there was an enemy and they were looking to pounce on Jesus, looking for any word that he might say that they could jump on him. This wasn't any regular teaching moment for Jesus. If you're a sports fan, like I am, I'm looking forward to late August, early September, when the college football season cranks back up, if we still have college football the way the world's going kind of thing. But as the season kicks up, you have the regular games, you know, like the first game of the season. Sometimes you play the Northwestern Eastern Louisiana State Sunshine University, right? The school that nobody's heard of. Well, that's a game, but the crowd shows up and the energy level's a little muted. It's not quite the same. But then if you show up to a rivalry weekend kind of game, you show up to a championship game, yes, it's the same, but it's completely different. The crowd is larger, people travel from a farther distance, there's greater intensity in the room, there's more expectation, there's more excitement, people are more on edge. That's what's taking place in this moment. People have traveled from a far distance. They came expecting something to happen. They didn't know what was gonna happen but they came expecting something with intensity. It wasn't a regular day of teaching at the office for Jesus. He knew the large majority of the crowd was deeply against him, hoping that he would trip up, that he would say something that they could take and capture and use against him. And so Mark indicates that the house was overflowing to the point that even the doors were jammed and there was no extra room. And at the end of verse 17, it's a little subtle note added here that you don't notice as often. It says, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Well, Jesus had already been doing miracles, but we have to remember that Jesus left heaven, he came to earth and he humbled himself, took on the form of a servant. So at times he laid aside his healing nature. But in these moments, it was communicating that his earthly ministry had begun. He was doing miracles and the power of the Lord was present for him. And so Jesus is calmly teaching 
in a packed house about the kingdom of God, while those were there were hanging on every word, trying to trick him up and find something to twist to hold against him. And that exact moment in verse 18, it says, and behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. The gospel of Mark tells us there was four guys with a paralyzed man, a total of five. And they brought him on a bed, probably a mat with maybe a wooden frame, kind of a portable, kind of a portable bed. We don't know the distance that they traveled, but it had to be some level of distance that these four guys were probably carrying each corner with this man on a mat. And in those days, a paralyzed man, there was a stigma associated with them. They would have been a social outcast, looked down on a lower class citizen because the perception was, if you are paralyzed, it's your own doing. There's a sin in your life. Now we don't know about the individual, how long they've been paralyzed, why they were paralyzed, if they got a disease. We don't know what took place, but we know these four men were carrying a social outcast someone that people looked down on and these friends goal was to get him before Jesus. They knew Jesus was in town. Jesus had begun doing miracles. If we can get him before Jesus, then just maybe something good might happen. So look at me in verse 19. It says, but finding no way to bring him in. Remember the, the house was packed. There was no way to bring him in because of the crowd. Look at this creativity. They went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. Now, in a church setting, we just read that and we gloss right through it. Maybe you've seen it on the, on the little sticky boards for the little kids and, and, and all sorts of, I think it's flannel graph. If I'm tracking right, Marta would probably be able to correct me on that, right? But these people get there with the mat. They've got each guy's on each corner and they're gonna bust through. Now you've been in large crowds. Maybe you get somewhere at the gate and you want to be up front and you do the old where you kind of turn side, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And depending on the nature of the crowd, right? If it's a nice crowd, if it's not quite packed, they'll kind of let you squirm all the way up thinking you're, oh, I'm meeting somebody up there. Oh, yeah, 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 hold on. Trying to find your way to the front. You would imagine these guys probably did the same thing. Hey, we're trying to get our, we got a paralyzed guy. You're just listening. Why don't you scoot out of the way, let us in. But they wouldn't let him in. There was no way for them to squeeze in. The crowd became a barrier to their friend encountering Jesus. Now we don't see all the details, but it's likely there were so many people there, they had to just pull back, sit down and come up with a new plan. And they've got an option. These four friends have an option. Do they just give up? Do they sit back and wait and think, hey, let's wait it out. When Jesus gets done teaching, maybe we'll have the opportunity to catch Jesus before he leaves. You can only imagine there's probably one guy in their group that's the creative one, the problem solver. They're sitting down trying to figure out what's our strategy. Well, I don't wanna quit, we walked forever. This, we, we think there's hope, come on, let's figure this out. And one guy says, hey, there's stairs, let's go up to the roof. And another friend's like, how's the roof gonna help? What are we gonna do, drink something up there on the roof? What's the point? And the guy's like, nah, let's go up on the roof and let's dig a hole in the roof. Now for us as church people, we're like, yes, they dig a hole in the roof and it's very pretty and it probably had a frame around it. No, imagine if you're in your house and you got a bunch of friends over and it's packed and someone wants to come to your party and they walk up on your roof and they dig a hole in your roof, right? That's not common, it wasn't common then. See, the roofs were about two feet thick 
packed full of mud on top of beams and then leaves and twigs and wreaths and, and all sorts of other things. And they knew we're going to literally have to walk up there on top of this roof, get on our hands and knees and dig through two feet of mud and junk and look like buffoons in the whole city. People are walking by going, what are these guys doing? They got a friend sitting on a mat and they're just digging. They don't have shovels and tools and it's not, there's not great music playing and it sounds great. It's a sunshiny day. No, they're up there on all four, just digging in the mud, just scooping out mud and dirt, thinking, well, that's our strategy. And so they decide that's their strategy and they begin scooping. Imagine in the house for a moment. They're in there and Jesus is packed in and they're teaching and you start to hear some noise up above you. You're like, what is going on up there, man? It's not an earthquake. What is happening? All of a sudden, some stuff starts falling on the Pharisees' robes. I'm sure they love that, right? I'm sure in that moment, they start getting kind of pretentious about it. What is going on? Maybe a little light starts to shine through. Maybe even one little head peeps through. Hey, yep, we picked the right spot. We're right in front of Jesus. This is going to be perfect. And then they start digging and they start digging and they start digging. And it's not just a little hole. You're not going to lower your friend down like it's silos. So they got to get a huge hole, a big pile of dirt on the side of the roof. The scripture says that this house had tiles on their roof, which means this was probably someone that had a really nice house. Most people didn't have tiles on their roof. So they knew they were damaging someone with some significant money and a nice home. And they dig a hole and they get it bigger and bigger. And eventually they get to the point that they're like, hey, we're ready. And I can only imagine they're like, how are we going to lower him down? We're like carrying him. We got to drop him 10 feet. Did you bring rope? I didn't bring rope. Did you bring rope? I didn't bring, you know, so somehow they figured it out. We don't know. And they lower him down. Now check this picture out. This guy gets lowered down before Jesus. There's four heads on the roof, looking down. All the Pharisees are upset, probably yelling at this guy to stop it. Who knows what the homeowner's thinking? If that was your home, what would you be thinking? You're going to pay for this. That's probably what the homeowner was thinking. Those guys hadn't even really processed what the cost would really be. You wonder what all of those in the house were really thinking when they saw this taking place. Mud and dirt's falling down. Jesus, does he keep teaching? Does he awkwardly stop? Does he talk to the people up there? What takes place? We don't know. But ultimately, the man gets lowered down right in front of Jesus. It's kind of a photo op moment. If they had a news station, it would be a great photo. Four heads up top looking down, everybody in the house with a facial expression, guy on a mat coming down, and then there's Jesus calmly teaching between, in front of those that are wanting to catch him doing or saying something. It was an intense situation that people came looking for an expectation and they were like, maybe this is the moment. This is the moment that we've been waiting that something's gonna happen. This guy's gonna get healed. Jesus is gonna go rub mud on his eyes. He's gonna do something amazing. We're all looking for it. And then we fast forward to verse 20 and let's see what happens. And it says, when he, Jesus saw their faith, he said, man or friend in some translations, your sins are forgiven you. He came to be healed. He can't walk. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Well, I didn't come here for my sins to be forgiven. I came to walk out of this place. You have no idea what are the Pharisees thinking in that exact moment. Everybody's shocked for a moment. This is not what they expected. It's not what they were looking for. And Jesus, it says, saw their faith. When you dig through the other gospels, it's implied that it's the faith of all five of them. 
The four guys that brought him in had obvious faith. They believed Jesus could do something. And then the one paralyzed who said, let's do this. Jesus saw their faith wasn't ordinary faith. It was believing faith. And he looks at him and he said, your sins are forgiven. That's the miracle of the story. I don't know what the heading is on your story. Probably Jesus heals the paralytic. We should probably go back and rename the heading, Jesus forgives the paralytic. That's the biggest miracle in the story. Is that Jesus forgives his sins. See, Jesus doesn't forgive sin apart from faith and repentance, which means Jesus saw straight to his heart. Jesus isn't gonna forgive just as a show. Remember, he's not gonna forgive sins as a show because that's salvation. Jesus handed salvation to this man because he could see right into his heart. He didn't pray a sinner's prayer. He didn't have a moment. He just looked and Jesus said, I see your heart. I see your faith. I see your repentance. I forgive your sins. In that moment, Jesus handed him salvation. The greatest miracle performed is the miracle of the forgiveness of sins. Though it may not be seen with the eye, it's more pronounced and more lasting than any physical healing. The message that Jesus was proclaiming is that if you'll believe and put your faith in him, he will forgive your sins. And that message was true 2000 years ago. And that message is true right now today. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus. If you surrender to him, if you come under him, he will forgive you of your sins and he will give you life and give you eternal life. Jesus shocked the crowd in verse 20 with a statement that he had not yet said. Yes, he had talked about being the Messiah previously, but he had never specifically said, your sins are forgiven to anyone until this point. So the Pharisees knew he claimed to be God. They'd already heard that Messiah aspect previously, but now they're like, oh, it's a whole new level. This is a whole new thing. Now he's forgiving sins. Let's look, look in verse 21. It says, and the scribe and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? This is what's beautiful. The Pharisees actually had some good theology in this moment. It was right theology. They said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Check, yes, great theology. The problem is there's an option now. Either Jesus is God who has the authority to forgive sins or he's speaking blasphemy. And the Pharisees fell on the wrong side of the fence, came to the wrong conclusion. The Pharisees came to the conclusion that he was speaking blasphemy and he didn't have authority. They had right theology, but their theology of Jesus was wrong. And they thought in this moment, they had gotten the moment that they gathered all of the Pharisees together. Everybody come from all over, anybody that can travel, make it. Representation from all sorts of villages and, and cohorts and everywhere. And they're all there and they all heard the same thing. Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And every Pharisee, every Sadducee, every teacher of the law that was there knew that's blasphemy. And they knew they had Jesus exactly where they wanted him. And in their mind, they had succeeded. The whole point of gathering for them they come to that moment and they were like, check, we got what we needed. We can head out. Now we can hold this against Jesus and we can turn it on him. 
But let's look in verse 22 and see what continues. Verse 22, it says, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, how you like that, huh? Some moms and dads can perceive their kids' thoughts, but not as well as Jesus. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them. They're like, we didn't ask you a question, but he answered them. Why do you question in your hearts? Verse 23, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? So verse 24, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Jesus addresses the religious leaders and this is so beautiful. This is brilliant. See, they say, well, Jesus, anyone can claim to forgive sins. We can't see it. We can't verify it. Anybody can walk in a room and say, your sins are forgiven. Well, there's no proof. It's not verifiable. You can't validate it. It's just a statement. Who are you to say that? They're like, so Jesus, you can make this claim all you want, but you're speaking blasphemy because we don't know. We can't see it. So then Jesus says, well, which is easier or which is harder? What if I told this man to pick up his mat and walk? Wouldn't that miracle prove that the former miracle was true as well? And so Jesus takes what is unseen, the forgiveness of sins, and verifies it by physically healing someone that can be seen and verified by everyone there. And he says, now you'll know the former miracle is true. He ties them together brilliantly. He connects them together to set them up. And so in verse 25, it says, and immediately, I mean, Jesus said, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately his legs would have not been working. His muscles would have atrophied. He should have had no strength in his legs. But immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And it says he didn't fix the roof. That was his friend's job. It doesn't say that, but that's maybe my assumption. Maybe he was a good friend and came back and helped them fix the roof. And it says in verse 26, an amazement seized them all. And they glorified God as well. And were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. The man's sins were forgiven, but he also got the physical healing as well. And his response was all credit to King Jesus. All credit to King Jesus. The man was shouting and singing and jumping and dancing. I can only imagine. And the Pharisees were frowning. They thought they had their moment, their moment of glory. All that they had been working toward had been accomplished just a few moments earlier. And then Jesus flipped the tables on them. Actually, I just verified I can't forgive sins because this man's jumping up and down and everybody knew he was paralyzed. Just in chapter four of Luke, just one chapter earlier, the, the Luke, the gospel writer here, wants us to know that Jesus does have authority. In chapter four, verse 32 and 36, Luke unpacks that Jesus has ultimate authority. And then we see in verse 24 of our text, look back in verse 24, it says here, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Why did he heal the man? He healed the man to prove that he was the son of God. He healed the man to prove that he had forgiveness 
of sins was under his purview and was in his authority. And the man's response was to praise God. And the people's response was to praise God. See, when God saves someone, the response is not to praise yourself. The response is to praise all King Jesus. When God saves your soul, the response is thankfulness. It's gratitude. It's praise. It's all glory to God alone. The scripture says we're not saved by works and no man can boast because we have nothing to boast about, but we boast in the goodness of Jesus. That's what we have to boast about. What an amazing passage story that we see two miracles taking place. The miracle of the forgiveness of sins that many of us in this room have experienced. And then the man experienced the physical healing from being paralyzed. So I wanna give us maybe some, some takeaways this morning that we, can, that we can hold on to. I want us to see three things about the four friends. I want us to see three things about the four friends that brought their paralyzed friend before Jesus. The first thing is this, they had a genuine burden for their friend. I mean, a genuine burden, it wasn't talk. They ignored the judgmental eye of others carrying around a social outcast. We don't know how far they carried them. They were probably exhausted and tired and it was a long way. They vandalized a house on behalf of their friends and maybe a rich man's house to boot. They genuinely loved him, had a burden for him to encounter Jesus. Let me ask you a question, church. What level of burden do you have for those around you who don't know Jesus? What level of burden do you genuinely have? Maybe it's someone in your neighborhood, on your sports team, at your gym, at your school, whatever it might be. Does it bother you if they don't know Jesus? Because these four friends, it bothered them. It upset them. It concerned them to the point that they were willing to make sacrifices to get their friend in front of Jesus. First thing we see is those guys had a genuine burden for someone that didn't know Jesus. The second thing is this, they had a conviction that Jesus was their only hope. Their actions showed that Jesus was their only hope and they were convinced of that. If they weren't convinced of that, when they got to the house and the crowd was there, they would have told their friend, hey man, we gave it a shot. There's too many people, sorry bro. We're going back. We're done. We're tired. No. And even if their friend was laying there and said, hey, rip the hole in the roof. Tim, nah, man, I'm not going to rip a hole in the roof. I have no idea what's going to happen. We might get arrested. I have no, I'm not doing it. Right? They had a conviction. Their only hope was Jesus. And if they walked away, their friend was hopeless. They had a deep conviction. It says in Acts 4.12, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. These men revealed their conviction in the risk of social embarrassment, in the sacrifice of their time, of their money, and their overall willingness to do anything. Let me ask us another question. Do we genuinely believe that Jesus is our only hope or is it lip service? Do we genuinely believe that Jesus is our only hope or is it Jesus plus? 
Jesus and. If I have a little Jesus and everything else, I'm good. But do we genuinely believe our hope is in Jesus and Jesus is enough and he is everything? Is our amen on Sunday impact what we do on Tuesday? Or do we say amen on a Sunday, but our Tuesday doesn't reflect that amen? You know, this month, we're excited. We've got three mission teams that are heading out this month because the individuals on those mission teams, by their time, by their sacrifice, giving up vacation, by, by sacrificing financially, they're speaking that it's worth it to have a burden for others and to have a conviction that they need Jesus so they're willing to go. And we praise God for those three teams and those church members that are heading out on mission trips this month. But here's the third thing I want us to see about these four friends is that they had a strong faith. They had a strong faith. Even Jesus acknowledged it. They had a persistent faith. They didn't let the crowd stop them. They went up on the roof, which is a major risk. They were aggressive. They didn't let anything stop them. They had a strong faith. Nothing was gonna stop them. They were persistent. And sometimes we take the road of least resistance. Oh, it's a little tough, a little awkward, a little weird. I'm not gonna, ah, I'll let that go. I remember years ago, Aaron and I were just married. We made our first major purchase as a married couple. We were off in seminary and we went out, we shopped and we bought ourselves a couch for our living room in our little apartment. Man, we were so excited. You, you, maybe you can remember that first major purchase and you realize how expensive it is to buy a couch even 20 years ago. We buy this couch, we're all excited and they're gonna deliver it in a couple of days and they come, out, come to deliver the couch and we're all pumped and the guys unload it. We live in this little apartment on the second floor and they come up the stairs and they make the turn and they're, they're struggling to get it in the door. And they turn and there's a little railing and they did this, took the door off and eventually these guys, that's what they do is deliver couches. So they know how to work the geometry and they look at me and say, hey, sorry, bro your couch ain't gonna fit in your house. So we're, we're taking it back. You can have a return. You're gonna have to buy something else. And I said, oh no, we're getting this couch in here. And he said, dude, it won't fit in the door. Uh, we're gonna figure this out. So I go outside, we had this little deck. I mean, it was nothing, but it had a little sliding door and I measured it. And that sliding door was a little bit bigger than the front door. So I said, we're taking the couch in through the sliding door. And the guy said, you're on the second floor. And I said, we're gonna do it. We're going to do it. I said, here's what you're going to do. You're going to back that truck up right here. And you're, you two guys are going to hoist that couch straight up in the air. And I'm going to grab it. And I'm going to bring it into my little apartment. And they said, dude, if this thing falls and breaks, it's on you. And I said, nah, we're, we're getting this couch in this apartment. So sure enough, these guys backed the truck up. And they lifted that couch up, fully extended, trying to get those front little, you know, wooden knobs on the couch over the little railing. And I'm up there and they push that couch up and I grab that couch with all my might and yell at those two dudes that I don't know anything about. And I just yell, get up here now. And they come running up the stairs and around and they run on their little balcony and they help me pull that thing over the railing. It fits through the sliding door and we get it in the living room. Well, I'll tell you what, I wasn't gonna let the size of our front door prevent us from getting that first major purchase in our little apartment. No way. My wife and I were gonna watch TV or our little 20 inch TV on that couch. It was gonna be amazing, right? Well, I tell you that because I was determined to get the couch in the living room. And some of us need to be a little more determined to get our friends to King Jesus because there's a whole lot more in the balance 
than a couch in a living room when it comes to our friend's eternal destiny. Second thing we can see about our friend having strong faith is they had a sacrificial faith. They sacrificed a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of reputation, a lot of risk. They had to go back and fix that roof, I'm sure. There's a lot of sacrifice that involves reaching somebody for the cause of Jesus. It says typically someone needs to hear the good news of Jesus seven to 10 times before they respond. And you know what? Most people in Valrico, Brandon, Riverview, Lithia, et cetera, aren't coming to church, but you're seeing them all the time. It takes opening our mouths and it takes a sacrifice. It takes a risk for us to reach people for the cause of Jesus. See, these four friends knew without getting their buddy in front of Jesus, he was hopeless. And church, we know the same thing about our friends. Those we work with, those we play on sports teams with, those we're at the gym with, those we're at the restaurants we see all the time. What can we do to find inroads, to see what God might wanna do to open the door to a gospel conversation? I wanna give you a little, a little, uh, a little tip, maybe a little tool, maybe something the Lord might use in your life. It's pretty cheesy. It's, I'm gonna give you an acronym today. It's kind of cheesy, but I'm gonna give you an acronym. The acronym is BOB, B-O-B, very pronounced. But here's something simple that maybe you can pray and maybe this acronym will help you even remember it. If you pray these three things, this acronym, maybe the Lord will use it in your life. The first thing is pray that God would give you a burden. These four friends had a burden for their buddy. I mean, they were tore up and they said, what do we got to do? They had a burden. May we have a burden for the people around us and not just walk by them, but may it break our hearts because it breaks the hearts of God. May we have a burden. May the Lord give us a genuine burden. We're not going to reach people until we have a burden. But the second thing is pray that God will give us an opportunity you pray that. God, give me a burden that I'll care about those I'm around. And God, give me an opportunity. Give me a door. Give me a chance. Put opportunities right before me. And when you're praying for it, maybe you're looking for it. Maybe God will give them to you. So pray for a burden. Pray for an opportunity. And the last B is this. Pray that God will give you boldness. When you genuinely care like these friends. And then he gives you an opportunity just like those friends didn't quit. They were bold. Let's go on the roof. Let's rip a hole. Let's, get, let's, let's make people upset. It's okay. Let's get our friend before Jesus. Maybe we need to be a little more bold. So maybe you'll pray that you'll have a burden, have an opportunity. Maybe God will give you boldness. You know, the power of Jesus is unleashed when we love the world, when we live with conviction, when we have a strong faith in Jesus. And here's the final observation from this passage today is Jesus does two incredible miracles. Here's the final observation is this. Jesus knows our greatest need. I don't know my greatest need. I think I do. But Jesus knows your greatest need. The paralyzed man was lowered down and he was seeking the ability to walk. He said, that's my need. My life stinks. I need to walk. If I could just walk, everything would be fixed. And he came before Jesus thinking, just heal me. Jesus looked at him. 
And we know eventually he does heal him. But Jesus looks at him and he says, I see your faith. And he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. He said, friend, your greatest need is not for your feet to work. Your greatest need is for your soul to be saved. Jesus knows your greatest need. He knows what's for your good and for his glory. And just like that man's response was he gave praise to King Jesus. He declared the greatness of God. The crowd's response was amazement at the power of God, the love of God, the goodness of God, the authority of God. They gave all glory to the King. All praise and all glory went to the King. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, then today we can know that Jesus knows our greatest need. But church, maybe we can take a little bit something away about these four friends. May we have a genuine burden for others. Maybe God will move us to be part of a process of encouraging someone in your life to have an encounter with the King of Kings. And the God of the universe may be looking for you to be the one to open your mouth and share the good news of Jesus with them. If you're here today and you're checking out this thing of Christianity and you're kind of curious about this Jesus thing, you're not sure, let me just say to you, my encouragement to you is, man, let today be your day of salvation. Just like Jesus looked at that man lower down in front of him and he said, I see your faith. Your sins are forgiven. Today can be the day that the God of the universe looks at you and says, I see your faith, your sins, they're forgiven. Today can be the day he wipes them away. He makes you clean. Today can be that day for you. We would love nothing more than to just be able to sit down and share with you what that looks like. What does it look like to surrender to Jesus? to lay your heart down to Jesus. What does that look like? When we wrap up the service here in a few minutes, there'll be individuals at the high top tables out there that would love to just talk with you about what does it mean to surrender to Jesus, to become a follower of him. If you wanna talk with someone, but maybe you wanna do it a little more anonymous, you can text us at any time. Text Bell Shoals to 77411 and we'd love to dialogue with you that way about what it means to follow Jesus, I don't care how we connect with you, but ultimately my plead and my urge that you don't leave here today without taking a step toward Jesus. Because we wanna be like those friends that lowered him down right in front of Jesus. And today you've had the opportunity to hear that Jesus can change your life and you can walk away praising God and giving him all of the glory just like that man did 2,000 years ago.